We're in the throne room of God as John receives this vision from Jesus Christ. He's ushered into the throne room of God. And today that vision is continued as we see further into what happens here in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 5. So we're going to read the entire chapter. We probably won't get through all of it, but um, we'll do our best to get started anyway. So Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open the book and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at our message this morning. Father, we just ask now for your spirit's presence. As we go into your word, we need understanding. We need you to enlighten us and to illuminate our hearts and minds, to understand to receive the things that you have for us today from your word. Lord, we want to receive your truth. That's why we're here, to give you our attention, to give you our submission, to yield ourselves to the authority of your word in our lives. And so, Lord, may that be accomplished through your work today. Lord, may your spirit do his work in each one of us to open our hearts and minds, to make us soft ground to receive the seed. And, Lord, I pray that you would use me as that instrument to sow the seed, to spread the truth, to tell the truth of your word as you want me to. Lord, I need your strength and I need to be filled with your spirit in order to accomplish that because it's you that is speaking here and not just a book or just a man. 
And Lord, may you again during this time be exalted. May your work be accomplished and may your name be lifted up. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into Revelation chapter 5, we have a continuation of the scene that we've seen the last few weeks in chapter 4, where John enters into the throne room of God. He's ushered literally up through the door into God's throne room in heaven. And so far what we've seen is that he has been awed, kind of overwhelmed by this scene, not only of the throne room, but of the one who sits on the throne, God himself, the almighty creator. And he's done the best he can so far to describe this heavenly scene for us using the inadequacy of human language because there's no way to really describe in human terms what heaven is truly like. And so he's struggling, if you will, to give us the best description he can. And he talks about the glory of God, the presence of God in terms of light emanating from the throne. He can't describe it any other way. There's no way he can describe the form of God because God is a spirit and really has no form. But he describes God in the, in the best way he can, as in his glory, and then he describes around the throne the 24 elders that he sees and the four beasts, which we know as cherubim, that are there worshiping at his throne. And the 24 elders represent the saved and redeemed church that at this point in history, where John is in this vision, has been raptured and is in heaven now. And the angels, these cherubim, um, that we've identified by looking at Ezekiel's testimony of the same scene, they are there standing and worshiping the Lord. That is their sole purpose. And they do it without rest, day and night. And then we saw at the end of chapter 4 how the worship of these cherubim inspires worship of the 24 elders. And they all bow down and proclaim glory and honor and power to the Lord who sits on the throne forever and ever. And that's where chapter 4 ends. And so as we go into chapter 5, we're continuing this scene. It kind of picks up where we left off. And here in chapter 5, John starts and he says, In the midst of all of this that's going on, he looks, and in the throne, seated in the throne, is the one who sits on the throne, and in his right hand is a scroll. Now, the reason that we are here is because so far we've seen the worship of God in heaven. Chapter 5 will focus on the worship of Jesus Christ, the Son, in heaven. And as we go through this chapter, you're going to see that the worship is pretty much exactly the same. The cherubim, the angels, the elders, all who are in heaven worship Christ, the same as they worship God. And the reason that is, is because it is the one and same God. Jesus Christ is God. God is represented as God the Father in chapter 4. He's represented as Christ the Son in chapter 5. And in both chapters, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit who rests in both entities, the Father and the Son. And so in chapter 5, we have a verification of the truth of the Trinity of God in chapters 4 and 5, I'm sorry, where all three parts of the Trinity are represented here and worship together as God by all who are present. And it gives us an example of the true worship that the triune God deserves. 
Now, apart from the worship, which is the main thing, there are some details that we want to see. Because it gives us why this worship is happening. Obviously, it's because it's God. Okay? But as we transition into chapter 5, there's a little bit of a change in focus. Now it's not on God himself, necessarily, that John is talking about and speaking about. He takes a couple of verses and he says, In the midst of all this worship, in the hand of the one on the throne, I saw this scroll. Now this scroll has significance. And that's why it's here. And we're probably going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the scroll because if we get the idea or understand what this scroll symbolizes and why it's in this vision, why it's in heaven, then all the rest of chapter 5 and all the rest of the book of Revelation is going to start to make much more sense to us. Okay? So I want us to understand this scroll this morning. So John says in verse 1 of chapter 5, he sees this scroll in the right hand of God the Father on the throne. Now, this is the first time that John has described in either of these chapters any part of God on the throne. To this point, he's only been able to describe his glory, the light that comes out of the throne, the rainbow that's around the throne. Remember, the the light emanating like it's reflecting off a jasper, like it's reflecting off a sardine stone, the sea of glass before the throne. Everything is in the terms of light because that's what God's glory is. And here, for the first time, he actually references a body part, if you will, of God. Now, God does not have a body like we are because he is not human. The Bible tells us in John 4, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So John is describing what he sees, and God allows him to see this hand of God on the throne, and in the hand is the scroll. Now, he doesn't talk about the hand, except that it's holding the scroll. And so the focus is on the scroll, and that's where we need to put our focus this morning. So the question is, what is this scroll? What significance does it have? The word for scroll here, or book Uh, depending on what version you have, is the Greek word biblion. It's the same word we get Bible from, okay? But it's a book. And this is what John would recognize as a book or a scroll because this is what they used in the times of, of John's existence. Basically, it was a scroll. It was a long piece or several pieces of papyrus or animal skin that were sewed together, so it made a really long strip. And then they would use that to write on long manuscripts or documents, and when that was finished, then they would roll it all up. Okay? So that is this scroll. When they would read a scroll, it was tied on both ends or fastened to two sticks. And so it was all rolled up in one roll at first when they started, and so they would unroll it and start to read. Now, scrolls were usually written in sections, and so you'd have a column of text. As you unrolled the scroll, you'd see a column. And you would read that column. And then you would unroll the next column and read that column. And as you rolled and this thing started to spread out, then you could roll up what you've already read so that only what you're reading shows. And that was this scroll that John saw. That was the traditional scroll of uh, biblical times. Now, just like us, most times many people, even in the Bible, didn't read through the entire scroll all at one time. And so wherever they stopped rolling and unrolling, They could just put it down and then later come back to it, and that was kind of their bookmark. So they would know, here's where we stopped, and it's time to pick up. 
Now, this was especially helpful in Jesus' day because they would regularly read the scrolls of the prophets in the synagogue. In fact, in um, uh, one of the Gospels, it talks about, in Luke chapter 4, it talks about Jesus going into the synagogue, and he's handed the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And as he's standing there reading, he finishes reading, he rolls the scroll up and hands it back to the, the uh, master of the synagogue, and then he sits down. And nothing happens. And then he stands up again and he says, Today you are seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy that I just read. But it was from that scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Now, we have a copy of Isaiah in a scroll form that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran. Okay, it was found in 1947. This scroll originates from 125 B.C., That's 150 years before Christ's death, okay? The scroll of Isaiah. It's the most complete scroll that's in existence that we have access to at this point. It has almost the entire book of Isaiah in it. It's about 10 and a half inches high, and when you unroll it, it's about 24 feet long. So that gives you an idea. I mean, if you looked at the book of of Isaiah in your Bible, you could see how many pages it took up. On a scroll, in Hebrew, obviously, it would be 10 and a half inches high and 24 feet long. Now, that would be a hard book to read if you were sitting down in your chair, you know, in your living room, and you started unrolling this thing, and 24 feet later, you got done. But that's the reason they had scrolls, is so they could roll it up and keep it. But they would also take these scrolls, and not just for... Um, you know, Bible books or the, record, the recording of God's messages to people, but scrolls were very common for, for any documents. They didn't have books in the form that we have. We call that a codex. It's when the book is formed into pages and then the pages are bound and then we open it just like we do our Bibles. This would be called a codex. What they had was a scroll. And so this is a common thing and John understands exactly what it is. And it was used for many purposes. Now, this scroll is different in several ways, okay? It's a scroll similar to what he understands a regular scroll to be, but it's got some unique characteristics about it. First of all, he says there's this scroll, and it's written within and on the backside. Now, scrolls normally were not written on both sides because, you know, as you write on this long piece of parchment and then you rolled it up, as you unroll it, the writing would be there. That would be very awkward to have to turn that whole thing over and read the back. But this scroll had writing on both sides. Now, that's unusual in most cases, but it's not unusual in the fact that actually in Hebrew history and in Roman history, they have found scrolls, and there's record of scrolls that have writing on both sides. And usually those are legal documents. They are important papers that have to be saved. Not only are they written on both sides, but they're also sealed as this scroll was sealed. Okay? But in these documents in Roman history, and even in Hebrew history, what they would do is in a legal contract, they would take that scroll, they would write out the terms of the contract on the inside in detail and in sections, And then they would roll that up, and then on the outside of the scroll, they would put a summary of what that document was about, what it was. Okay, So everybody would know without having to open it up, this is this document. And then it would be sealed, so that without breaking the seal, they could see, here's what this document is. 
but they did that for legal documents, and we have that documented in history. So John says this, this scroll has writing on both sides. That gives us a little bit of a hint that this is something important. And in a sense, it may be a, some kind of contract or document, legal document, that has significant bearing on both the holder and the one that it's about. Okay? Um, God gives us in Scripture, and actually in life, lots of pictures. And we've seen this many times. Um, I shared back with you a while ago, maybe last year, we talked about the picture that God gave through the ancient Jewish uh, wedding ceremony of Jesus, the salvation that he gives us, his coming back someday to take us. And there's correlations there. He gives us a picture in the Lord's Supper of his death and resurrection, so we remember that. Okay, so God gives us symbols all through, not just the Bible, but all through life as we learn it and as we study it about things in um, his kingdom that are relevant to us, and it helps us understand them. And so here we have this scroll, and God uses this, uh, this picture of a scroll to teach John something, to tell him something important is going to happen here. And this scroll represents an important event, an important uh, legal matter that has to be taken care of, but it's in the hand of God. And so this deals more than with just a couple of people on earth. And God, as the creator, then rules over all of us, and so this scroll has significance for everyone. And that's what we know from what we see here. John goes on, he says there's seven seals. Now, in history, we have two examples of legal contracts signed and sealed with seven seals. The wills, uh, last will and testament of both Augustus and Vespasian of the Roman Empire, were sealed with seven seals. They were important, very important documents, okay? In fact, Roman law actually during Jesus' time required that a legal will was sealed with seven seals. And so our first indication of this is that maybe this is a will, but whose will is it? Well, here's the problem. We can say, well, God's holding it, so it must be God the Father's will. That's true. It may be his will, but wills are usually only enacted when a person dies, God's not going to die. So it can't be necessarily just a last will and testament of God the Father. God is not going to die. So it has his will in it, but it's much more than that. Okay? So the will, um, I'm sorry, any legal document that's both extremely important and private or has classified information, was sealed with these seven seals, any real important legal document. So John gives us this description of this scroll, a book, some kind of document. It's written on the inside and on the outside, and it's sealed with seven seals, which gives extreme significance for both the holder and those it affects. Now, these seals that John describes, again, can only be opened by one who is qualified in authority and position to open that document. For instance, if someone made a marriage contract, and this goes back to the Jewish wedding. Back in Jewish days, they would, uh, the groom would come to the father of the bride, and he would make a marriage contract. They would set out the terms of the contract. Part of the terms there were what was required by the groom in order to claim his bride, and some of that included the, what they called the bride price, what the groom was going to pay the father 
in order to recompense him for all of the trouble and all the expense that he put into raising his daughter. Now, I'm sorry they don't do that anymore because I have five daughters, okay? I'd be much better off in my bank account if that was true, okay? But that's what they would do in Jewish times, okay? That's how they they, uh, did the, the, the marriage contract. But they would set the terms of the marriage contract, and then they would put it in a scroll, and they would seal it up. And then it was filed in the court system. Now, the only ones who were qualified to open and look and read the terms of that seal were the ones who were involved in that seal or in that scroll. Okay? The groom, when he came for his bride, would bring that contract to prove that he had met all the terms of the contract. The father of the bride obviously had access to it, and he would agree all the terms have been met. Okay? So there was only a few people who were qualified to open the seals of these legal contracts, whatever they were. If it was a last will and testament, it had to be the oldest uh, surviving family member, the one who would be the heir. He was the only one that could break the the seal on a will and testament. Um, So the seals have significance here. No one can open these except those people who are qualified, and that becomes important, as we'll see in a couple of verses, okay? So the fact that there's seven seals represent also the perfection and the completion of whatever is inside. Seven seals is God's number of perfection, completeness. We see over and over through Revelation, the beginning chapters, the seven spirits of God. Okay? That's the completeness of the Holy Spirit, the completeness of his ministry. And so these seven seals represent that whatever is in this scroll is complete and final. There's nothing more that needs to be added to it. It is sufficient to cover whatever the terms of the contract are. So the question is, we have the description, but what's in it? Because that's what's important, right? Well, we're not told in chapter 5 what's in it. We don't know what's in it until we get to chapter 6. And the rest of the book of Revelation is what's in this scroll. Chapter 6 begins the breaking of these seals and the revealing what's in this document what's in this contract and it goes all the way up through chapter 11 and chapter 18 and chapter 19 just before uh, or when Christ sets up his kingdom on earth now to get the real significance of this scroll you have to understand the entire book of revelation I can't preach the entire book of revelation in one message or we'd be here till next Thursday okay I'm going to go for lunch today I'm not going to be able to make it that far But I want us to get a handle on this scroll because we do know what's in it because John reveals it to us in chapter 6 through 19. But here we're not told what's in the scroll. What's revealed to us as in chapter 6 and onward, we know is the judgment of God. That's what's in this scroll. That's the contents of it. You go, well, how is that a legal document? Because the judgments of God are the terms of his contract with mankind. When he created Adam and Eve, all he asked was that they obey him. Right? Just obey him, love him, and do what he did, what he wanted them to do. And they broke that contract. 
I believe that what we're looking at here is what most commentators would call the title deed to creation or the title deed to the world. Now, let me explain that a little bit. When God created the heavens and earth in Genesis chapter 1, he became the owner. If you create it, you own it. I mean, everybody understands that. That is a very factual thing, and the Bible tells us that over and over. God is not just the creator, but he is the owner. That means he owns all of us as well as all of creation. After he creates the world and he creates Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and verse 28, God gives dominion to Adam and Eve over his creation. And I want you to quickly, if you want to turn back there, I'm just going to read those two verses in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over everything that moveth upon the earth. So as God creates Adam and Eve, he gives them this dominion. The word dominion there means authority. In fact, he uses the word in verse 28, subdue it. That means use it for your benefit. Use it well. And the idea of stewardship is in that word subdue. But he basically gave man authority over all creation at that point and over all the earth to use it to meet their needs. Okay? Not to use it for whatever he wanted to get out of it, to use it to meet their needs. And that's why he specifies the animals, because the animals he was to care for at this point. They weren't to eat the animals. But that was the job of, of, Ab- uh, of not Abraham, I'm sorry, Adam. That was the job of Adam is he was to care for the animals, to tend the garden, to take care of the earth. He was, in a sense, the sub-ruler, the governor of the earth at that point. So when God gave Adam and Eve that dominion over the earth, in essence, what he did was hand them the title deed to the earth and said, this is now yours, take care of it. Be a good steward and take care of my creation. In fact, we get to Genesis chapter 3, and then we have a problem. Because in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Satan comes along in the form of a servant. He deceives Eve, and Adam and Eve both sin. And in that sin, they bring a curse upon themselves and upon all creation. That's the curse of sin. And when that curse fell, and when they broke that contract with God, they forfeited that title deed and that dominion that God had given them. And they forfeited it to the one to whom they submitted themselves to serve. And in disobedience, they now had submitted themselves to Satan. So Satan held that deed, in essence, and took over dominion of the earth at that point of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul explains this, and he says, To whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Adam and Eve obeyed Satan, not God. And they became his slaves. 
just as all of us are because we are descendants of Adam, because sin is passed down through generations and we can't avoid it. And so we are all the servants of sin under the dominion of Satan when we're born and until Christ frees us in salvation, that's who we serve. That's what the Bible says. And Satan now has dominion over the earth. He still does. It's not that God is not in control. It's that this is Satan's realm. He has usurped that authority from the man and woman that God gave that authority to. So Satan has usurped that authority. And the earth, in fact, Satan is several times called by Jesus in the book of John, the prince of this world. Jesus calls him that, the prince of this world. He's the one that rules over people. Not absolute control, but this is his dominion. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul also calls him the prince of the power of the air, referring to the atmosphere that we live in. And he also calls him, again, the prince of the world in Ephesians chapter 6, the powers that be in this world. Okay, So Satan basically has that dominion now. He's usurped it from God through that act of sin of Adam and Eve. And man has lost his authority and his standing before God and his right to inherit the earth and is now dependent upon someone else to fix that for him. We can't do it ourselves. We have to have somebody restore us as mankind as the rightful heirs of the earth. And you go, where, where do you get all that from in Scripture? Matthew chapter 5, when Christ gave us the uh, Beatitudes, okay, In the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the meek for, do you remember what the reward is? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Bing, the light goes on. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the Beatitudes are a description of those people who have truly become sorrowful for their sin, have repented and have come to God for salvation, and now the character of God starts to be made apparent in them. Meekness being a big part of that. Remember, salvation starts with and continues with submission. And so Jesus said, it's those who have submitted to God rather than Satan, the meek, those are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. And that's coming. But we can't do it ourselves. We've been alienated. We've lost that inheritance because we serve a different master rather than the one who has the authority to give it to us. So somebody else has to do it for us. Here's where these pictures come in that God gives us all through Scripture. In the Old Testament, God gave the law. And in the law, he made some provisions for people who had a debt that they couldn't pay. And he said, if you have a debt that you can't pay, what you can do is take your property, your land, and you can sell that land to get money to pay that debt. And then you have a certain period of time that you work out with the new owner that you can redeem that land. Now, generally, it was six years, and then every seventh year, all of that, they called it the year of jubilee, it had to be given back, okay, or that freedom. Same thing happened if you didn't have land, but you were able to sell yourself into slavery, And many people had to do that. And they would sell themselves to somebody else to pay a debt, and they would have to serve them for six years, and then the seventh year they were let free. Okay? But someone could step in on your behalf. 
Now, sometimes in these contracts, and God actually in Leviticus chapter 25 makes this stipulation that if you sell a house or land, you have one year to buy it back. And if you can't buy it back, someone of your close kin can step in and they can buy it back for you so that the land or property stays in your family. But if you forfeit that land, if you go beyond the terms of the contract, it's gone. You lose that forever. And there is no ever getting it back. And God stipulates very specifically that not even in the year of Jubilee can that be returned. You have lost it for good. And there was a title deed that was attached to that land that went to the new owner. And that was never returned if it was never paid for. Okay? So God gives this stipulation to um, Israel in the law. And here's the things that they're supposed to follow if these occurrences happen. Now, again, the law was not just for the practical, everyday lives of Israel. The law was given to give us pictures of God himself, of his plan for the world. Okay? And so we have a picture in the law here of our condition. We have lost the title deed or the claim to the title deed of the earth. We have lost position in our father's house because we chose to serve a different master. And where John is in this picture is at the end of the term of that contract. Now, the story of Ruth is a perfect example of this law of redemption, okay? Again, the books of the Bible, the things in the Bible are there for a purpose. The story of Ruth very quickly goes like this. There's a couple, Elimelech and Naomi, and they live in Bethlehem. They are Israelites, but they have come across a drought, they have no money, they have no food, and so they have to sell their property and their land and move to Moab where they can get work, where they can get uh, food, where things will be provided for them. And so they do that, and they take with them their two sons. When they get there, their two sons get married, and then soon afterwards, Elimelech and his two sons all die. And so Naomi is there alone with her two daughters-in-law, both of them Moabites. Ruth is one of them, and when Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem because there's nothing left for her in Moab, uh, Ruth convinces her to take Ruth with her. Ruth won't leave her side. She says, you're my family now. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going back with you. So they go back to Bethlehem. They have nothing. They have nowhere to live. They have no money. They have no food. And so they find a place that they can stay, but Naomi tells Ruth, you should go out to this field of Boaz and glean. Now, remember, I talked about the harvest a couple weeks ago. In the the harvest of Israel, God commanded them, first you take the sampling, the wave offering, that's the little bit to prove the quality of the crop, and then when you harvest, you harvest the entire field, but don't harvest the corners. Make sure you kind of round off the corners so that's left, and if you drop anything, do not pick it up. And the reason for that is because the poor people, and in this case, Ruth, would come in after the fact and glean that which was left over or that which was on the ground. That was how the the poor survived, and God knew that. He made provision for them in that harvest process so that they could be provided for. They had to go work for it, but it was there for them to gather. Okay, So Ruth went out to glean in the fields to gather enough food for her and Naomi. Ruth finds out that Boaz the owner of the field, is actually a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband. And so Naomi says, 
I want you to go to Boaz. And there was this thing called the kinsman redeemer where a next of kin of a husband who died could marry the, the widow and then the widow would be restored to the family and would obviously then reclaim the rights to the property, to the position, and all that came with it. Boaz realizes Ruth is family now because she married a cousin of mine. And so Boaz wants to marry Ruth, and in marrying Ruth, he will restore the proper land to her family, and then Ruth will actually have the inheritance that she should have gotten because she married her husband. The problem is that Boaz is not the oldest. There's another brother who actually has that first right of redeemer kinsman. And so Boaz goes to his brother and he says, hey, here's the situation. Ruth and Naomi have come back. They've lost their husbands according to the law. You're in line here to to claim this property as yours now. And And the brother goes, oh, really? Well, that's cool. And then he says, oh, and by the way, in order to do that, you also have to marry Ruth because that's the brother, that, that, that's her, the brother's wife. And his older brother says, I can't do that. I'm already married. And Boaz says, okay, then that's settled. I'm going to marry her. And Boaz doesn't just marry her so that he can claim the property. Boaz marries Ruth because he loves her. But in marrying her, Boaz restores to Naomi's family in Ruth all that was lost when they sold the land and left the land. And so God gives us a perfect picture in the story of Ruth, this idea of the kinsman redeemer, somebody who can step in on another person's behalf to reclaim what has been lost. In Jeremiah 32, God gave another example to Jeremiah. This was a strange incident, if you don't understand the context. Jeremiah 32, we're toward the end of the book of Jeremiah, and God gives Jeremiah a command to go into the land of Israel to buy a piece of property and then to get the title deed and then seal it up in a, in a jar so that it will last a long time. And Jeremiah is probably thinking at this point, if you know the book of Jeremiah, okay, we just spent years of me preaching God's judgment, and we know that all Israel is going to be lost. We're going to lose our land. Babylon's going to come in and destroy us and scatter us all over the world. Why in the world does God want me to buy a piece of property now when he knows I'm going to lose it? And God says to him in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, because someday that land's going to be restored. See, I have a plan in all this. And as the story, it's not a story, as the account in history goes, Babylon did come in. They destroyed Israel. They took people. They took over the land. And 70 years, Israel was not, the people of Israel were not in Jerusalem at all. And then when Persia conquered Babylon, King Cyrus decreed that the Israelites could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and reclaim their land. And Jeremiah had the deed. See, God knew. But all that is just a picture for us to understand this book that we see here in Revelation 5. Okay? What this scroll is in Revelation 5 is the title deed to the world, to the earth that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned and forfeited that deed to Satan or the inheritance of that deed. Now, all through Ephesians... Paul makes reference to those who believe in Christ and those who are saved as being heirs. 
heirs with Christ. Christ is the one who will inherit the earth. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He will rule over all. That's been promised all throughout Scripture. So it belongs to him, but the deed is in God's hand. And right now, the people of God have lost the right to it. But Christ is going to restore that. He is the kinsman redeemer. So the search starts in in verse 2. Understanding what this scroll represents and what we've lost as people, the angel, and John understands all of this, okay? John knows all of what I've just, probably a lot more than what I've just explained to you. But in verse 2, here's what John says, after I see this scroll, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? This strong angel represents Someone whom God has appointed with authority. If you will, he's kind of the person representing the judge saying at this point, who is the kinsman redeemer that's going to stand up and claim responsibility for this contract and meet the terms of it because the term of time for this contract is up? We're done. We're at the end of that contract, and it's time for somebody to step forward to break this seal and meet the terms of the contract. That's what verse 2 is. And he says, who is worthy? It has to be somebody that's qualified. Like I said, documents, legal documents, couldn't be opened by just anybody. It had to be somebody who was qualified, who was connected with that contract or with that document, and who had the authority to read and open and execute that document. And so the angel stands there and he says, who is it that has the authority, who is going to be the kinsman redeemer to restore this title deed to the proper recipients? Time is up. We have to have someone step forward. And then look at verse 3. John says, And no man in heaven or on earth, either under the earth, was able to open the book Neither look upon. Nobody. Now, John goes to great pains to describe where this call went out to. He says, nobody in heaven, all the church were standing there, the 24 elders, all the angels. Nobody in heaven was qualified. I'm sorry, no man in heaven. And then he says, not in earth. That means people that were alive on the earth. And he says, not under the earth. So we're searching both heaven and hell and earth to find somebody that's qualified to be this kinsman redeemer, to be someone who's qualified to meet the terms of this contract and who's qualified to open this contract now and to execute what's inside. And there's no one. And he says, no one was able to open the book, neither look thereon. In other words, to read what was in it. So put yourself in John's shoes at this point. John understands all the prophecy of the Old Testament. He understands, and he's been given a very clear picture of the exalted Christ. God is giving him a picture of what is to come, but John knows through the prophecy of the Old Testament, and through what Jesus had taught him on earth, 
that Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom on earth. That the earth is going to be redeemed. That people are going to be redeemed. That creation is going to be redeemed. And this is it. This is the time for that to happen. That's what John's relaying here. Think about who is there. Noah, perfect and upright man. Elijah, Moses. No one's qualified. The Apostle Paul, even, because he's dead at this time. No one's qualified. So the angel asks this question that echoes throughout heaven and earth, and what follows is absolute silence. No answer. And now you understand verse 4. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. John realizes this is it. This is the last chance we have for everything to be taken care of, for creation to be redeemed and brought back under Christ's control, for man to be finally redeemed and glorified and all of sin conquered and done away with, and no one steps forward. And based on John's response, there must have been just absolute silence for a while. Because, I mean, if I was John, I'd be like, looking around, who is it? Who's going to step up? And there's no one. And at that point, John starts to weep because he realizes that there is this, there's no hope. All the hope that he's had, all of the prophecy that he's read, all of the promises, it's going to come to nothing because there's no one who can fulfill this contract. This morning we were studying John 11 about the death of Lazarus. And in John 11, it talks several times about the people weeping. They were wailing. They were sobbing just outwardly, loudly. That's this word weep. John just breaks down absolute. He, he, he sobs because for him it's hopeless. If no one can step up, this contract will expire And all of creation will never be redeemed again. It will stay under the control of Satan. Sin will never be abolished. And that's why he weeps. It's a a weeping, a sobbing of desperation and grief and hopelessness. But then we get to verse 5. And one of the elders steps up. And he says to John, don't weep. Because there is one worthy. He says, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereon. The angel comes up to him and says, Don't weep, John. There's no need for you to weep. Even though nobody stepped up, there is one who is worthy to open this book. And... He describes him as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Now, these are Old Testament references to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
He says, nope, there is no man, but there is the Lion of Judah. Jesus Christ is the one who's worthy to open this. He's the one who's worthy to fulfill the terms of the contract. In fact, he already has. And he's the one who is worthy to execute whatever is in this contract, to return all things as they should have been from the beginning. And there's the hope. Jesus Christ is that kinsman redeemer that we all need. Without him, we have no hope. Now, we talk about salvation, I think, in glib terms sometimes because we say, well, you know, God has redeemed me. I'm going to heaven. I'm saved. That's great. But we still suffer. In Romans chapter 7, Paul gives the description of a Christian suffering with sin. And he says, there's things that I know I should do, and I don't do them. There's things that I know I shouldn't do, and I do those. He said, it's a struggle every day against the flesh, because in me dwells sin. All right, And from that chapter, we get this phrase, the spirit is, is willing, but the flesh is weak. We want to do the right things. But we don't. Why? Because we're still fighting the flesh. We're still fighting against the curse of sin. All that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. And Jesus fixes all of that. Now I've taught about salvation in the past. And I said, there's not just the present aspect of it. We're not saved. Okay? We're continually being saved through sanctification. But there is a future presence of salvation or a future tense of salvation that it's not just our souls that are going to be in heaven. God is going to give us a redeemed and glorified and perfect body. Now, temporally, we think, man, I can't wait for that because my knees won't hurt anymore. I won't have headaches. You know, I'll be able to do things without falling over, without forgetting stuff. Man, I can't wait for that. Okay? And that's true. Okay? That's what we have to look forward to in heaven when we receive those redeemed bodies. But those redeemed bodies, that part of redemption of creation can only be accomplished through Christ who is worthy to open this scroll so that things can be returned the way they were at creation. And as we get into Revelation... We see later on in the book in chapter 19 when we talk about the kingdom of Christ. And if you look at that and compare it with the prophecies of Zechariah and Ezekiel, in the kingdom of Christ, in the thousand-year reign, the earth is going to be perfect. We're going to have perfect, well, by then the church will be perfected, we'll be glorified, and we'll come back as glorified beings. But people are going to live for a thousand years. It'll be just like it was. Or, or pretty close to what it was at creation. Everything will be back to the way it's supposed to be because Christ will be in charge. And the reason he can do that is because he will have been the one who has been the one worthy to open this book. That's why we spent so much time in, chap- in verse 1. Because this book means everything. And as we get further into Revelation, as the book is opened, you realize... All right, you get into chapter 6, and all of a sudden the seals are opened and judgment begins to be poured out upon the earth. 
What does that have to do with us? Well, that's God's revenge, God's judgment against his enemies who've usurped the authority of over the earth, and he's judging them now through the great tribulation. That's the majority of Revelation. God's judgment against the enemies who have usurped the authority and the claim to this deed. And then at the end of that, Christ reclaims that deed and sets up his kingdom on the earth. And it all starts with this scroll. So if we understand this scroll, we understand Revelation. Now, I could preach for another two hours. I get excited about this stuff, okay? I'm not going to. We're going to stop there. And next week, we're going to take a real close look at the next verses that focus on Christ as the kinsman redeemer, the lamb and the lion. Because he's the one that the focus is all on here. All right, so let's finish up with a word of prayer, and then we'll come back next week and and pick this up here. Lord, thank you again for your goodness to us and for giving us your word. And Lord, even in passages that seem very difficult to understand, you've given us pictures and models of things to come. And as we look at your word as a whole, as we put the pieces in place, Lord, you've given us the opportunity to understand at least some of this. But through it all, we see Jesus Christ at the center of it. We see the importance of his death, of his resurrection, of our faith in him so that we can be redeemed, not just to save our lives, but so that we can be restored to all that you want for us. Lord, again, we thank you for your word, for the promises that are in it, for the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ, because of what you said is coming for us. And so, Lord, help us to keep that in focus as we serve you, as we live day by day. Lord, I pray now that you would use your word to encourage us, to exhort us, to do your work in us, to help us to have the right mindset about this life and the one to come. And in everything, may you be glorified. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 204. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's exactly what John does in verse 6 when we come back next week. But we want to make sure our eyes are always on Jesus.